America is deeply reactionary at the moment. Same thing can be said for the church. I think we have worked very hard to try to harmonize the Christian gospel in the American dream. We make a sort of Faustian bargain, a Machiavellian kind of end justifies the means. You're part of our tribe, and if you're part of our tribe, we'll defend you no matter what. And if you're outside of our, our tribe, then you're the enemy. They recast Jesus himself as this ultimate fighting champion. Jesus will not be a mascot for the elephants or the donkeys. Jesus is the lamb, and he's going to reign and rule. Every time the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying, Caesar is not. Your baptism has made you an exile. You don't belong to this anymore. Political power drives everything. If you cannot criticize your political party, that's your civil religion. You will be respected. You will be in power. It was everything that they ever wanted to hear. The way of the Lamb is always love, the way of the Lamb is always peace, the way of the Lamb is always grace. They say they're rejecting Christianity, but they're actually rejecting a version of American nationalism. I think one of the most important things for American Christians to perceive is that America is not a kind of biblical Israel, but a kind of biblical Babylon. Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us today, and if you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. Today is the last week of our book discussion uh, during Lent on uh, this book, Postcards from Babylon, the Church in American Exile. Today we're cha uh, covering chapters 9 and 10 in the book, and this series is about the rise of Christian nationalism in the United States and how Christians always find ourselves as exiles in this world and in a world superpower if we really want to follow Jesus Christ. And it's written by a pastor in Missouri named Brian Zond. And next week, we're going to welcome the author of the book, Brian Zahn, to be our special guest during the Sunday morning service next week. I encourage you to invite friends and uh, from wherever you are, however you watch this, to watch the author of the book, talk about why he wrote it. Next week is Palm Sunday, and so he's going to focus on chapter 6, which is about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, that first Palm Sunday, and, and what that meant then and what it means now. And if, if you look up the word relevant in the dictionary, you might see a picture of this book. Because even this week, what we have seen happening in the United States is discussed in chapters 9 and 10 that we're covering today. We saw eight Asian American women be shot to death by a man in Atlanta who claimed to be a Christian and claimed that he killed them because they were temptations to him. That happened this week in the United States. And that sounds to me like a blend of racism, sexism, and American Christian purity culture that teaches men that they're 
essentially sex monsters and to blame women as the objects of their lust. And that kind of rhetoric mixed with anti-Asian American uh, assaults and rhetoric that we've seen here over the past couple of years in the United States led to a mass shooting this week. There's also an older Asian American man who was assaulted. If you've seen pictures, his face was all bloodied and swollen and his eyes were, 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 were black and, and uh, there was an assault on an, an older Asian American woman this week. Hate crimes against Asian Americans rose 150% from 2019 to 2020. In New York City, hate crimes against Asians, Asian Americans went up nine times higher than what they were from 2019 to 2020. And now even this week, a young man who claimed to be a Christian and, and somebody who knew him said he wouldn't even say cuss words. He viewed himself as being so dedicated to God that he wouldn't even cuss. And he murdered eight Asian American women because he thought there were temptations to him. Now we can pretend that we don't know why we've seen this, this explosion in anti-Asian American rhetoric and violence over the past couple of years. But we do know why. And it's what we're talking about in these two chapters, chapters 9 and 10. We're talking about Christian nationalism, and included in that is this race, racial component of labeling anybody who is not a white Christian American as the other, as somehow not belonging here. And when COVID happened, the former president and other leaders and some media outlets who tend to support him referred to COVID as the China virus, and then also used anti-American or anti-Asian racial slurs to refer to COVID-19. And that's when the explosion in anti-Asian rhetoric and violence happened in the United States. It's not a guessing game. As we've said so many times, to be silent is to be complicit. We as Christians in the United States who want to follow Jesus Christ cannot remain silent when self-professing Christians use racism and violence to target anybody, especially those of racial minorities. And most of those attacks against Asian Americans are against women. We cannot sit silently by and let that happen. So we're speaking out as a church. That's what this Lent series is about. That's what these two chapters are about. And ultimately, as you'll see in the interview with, with the author, Brian Zahn, next week, what we've really been talking about during Lent is Jesus. Because Lent is a season of preparation for Easter. And we want to see Jesus more clearly. We want to grow closer to Jesus, the real Jesus. Not this, this, this uh, distorted, strange a Christian nationalist picture of Jesus that has been created by, by American politicians and media. We want to follow the real Jesus. And so that's what we're talking about in this series. And today, Jezekiel uh, Vitalzi is going to give the message on chapters 9 and 10. And then I encourage you to read the chapters this week. 
And then this coming Wednesday, you can participate in our online connect group. If you go to our Facebook page or wellchurch.org, you can get information about how to join in that online connect group this coming Wednesday, where you can discuss chapters 9 and 10. So, without any further ado, let's welcome Jezekiel Vitalzi to talk about chapters 9 and 10 from Postcards from Babylon. What's up, everybody? It is so good to be with you this Sunday morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jezekiel Batalzi, and I am the a current member here at The Well, but I also served as uh, the worship leader in earlier days. And I believe the last time I spoke with you all and gave a sermon here at The Well was during our Advent series in December. And I'm so excited to just be back, to be with you all again, um, especially since like so much has happened in my life since December. First of all, when I came, you all back in December. I was filming all of this in my apartment in upstate New York because that's where my wife and I lived at the time. And I'll be honest, we did not love it. We don't love snow. We don't love New York. We don't really love anything about that place. So we prayed and prayed and prayed and we asked God to bring us back to Phoenix and he delivered. Woo! We are back here. Um, living in central Phoenix. My wife has taken a really great job at Basis Goodyear, which is a middle school there. And um, she's teaching eighth grade English. I'm gonna be working back at ASU uh, in academic advising for first year students. But even more so than all of that, we are just so happy to just be here in this desert sun with all of you fine and wonderful people. And if there are some of you here who are watching from other states, I want you to know I am with you. I love you. Come to Phoenix. You'll realize that this is the way. You know, when, when we saw that, you know, the Old Testament folks spent like 40 years like wandering the desert, that might have been really frustrating, but I'll bet they had a great time because the desert is lit. Anyway, great to be with you all again. I'm so excited to be here. And if this is your first time at the well, welcome. You know, we are currently going through a book together right now called Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile. It's by Brian Zond. And this book has had a really profound impact on my life. You know, not only do I really just vibe with the concepts of this book, but I've loved all of the healthy discussion that we've had as a church over the course of these past four weeks. Um, not only does the online function of how we're doing church right now allow us to have really interesting conversations in the chat, which I hope that you're, you're firing away uh, comments and questions right now, but I've really just been encouraged by the community that we've built around this book. You know, and on Wednesday nights, we have these really great connect books where we talk about, you know, the concepts of these books as well as how they relate to kind of our life experience. It has just been a very liberating time for all of us. So I'm, I'm really excited to kind of share what we've learned. And if you're someone who hasn't really read anything about this book or you don't really know what this book is about, that's okay. I'm gonna provide you with some recaps as well as, you know, give you some resources like going to our YouTube channel and just re-watching all the sermons that, you know, do the recaps on each of these chapters. If you're a slow reader like me, you can also just listen to this book on tape, you know, do it while you're on the treadmill like I do, you know, just kind of like getting your Jesus on while you're on the elliptical, all that stuff. But also, you know, uh, feel free to just uh, contact any of the leaders at the well. They're happy to kind of like give you the rundown on what this book is. But all that to say, I'm really excited about what, what what's going to be in this book. And before I dive into the the chapters that I'm assigned for today, I actually have a confession. And being that we're at church, 
I think this is the best time for me to really come clean on this confession. So, first of all, the chapters that I'm assigned today are about Donald Trump. And when I was first asked by Pastor Ryan to give a sermon on one of these chapters, I like flipped through the book. I hadn't really read all of it at the time and I was just kind of like, you know, skimming it really. And when I saw the chapter on Donald Trump, I didn't even read it. I immediately texted Ryan back being like, give me chapter nine about Donald Trump. That's what I want to talk about. And all, in all honesty, I didn't have the best intentions. I didn't. And here's, here's what I mean by that. I mean that like, you know, before I read the, the, this book, I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be a total, total slam fest on evangelicals. And I am here for it. And I came in with all this tribalist energy, just being like, I cannot wait to reference this book the next time I'm on Facebook with one of my Southern Baptist friends, you know? But I will say that this book had the opposite effect on me, in all honesty. It did. I, I realized that this is not a book that aims to just like poke fun at how you know, weird evangelicals have come to be in the in, in, in these in these past few decades. That's not what this book is. In fact, in so many ways, this book put a mirror to my face. And I read this book and was just so convicted by so much of it because of the fact that, you know, I too struggle with an affinity towards empire, with an affinity towards, um, you know, materialism, with, the, with, with, with an affinity that really, you know, helps me to not only just go astray, but to rationalize my going astray in a seemingly biblical way. And I think that this was a wake-up call for me in so many ways. And uh, I walked away from, from, from this book, even the Donald Trump chapter, really just trying to reevaluate, oh wow, like, how can I just be the best Christian that I can be? How can I really kind of reinvigorate my Christian practice and, my, and, and how I look at the world and how I look at people and how I look at even my own life. So that's what I'm gonna talk a lot about today. And, uh, you know, again, I wasn't expecting to have that. And, 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 I, and perhaps some of you had that same kind of energy as well. And, and, and while I get it, I want you to know that if you walked away from this book thinking like, oh, those evangelicals, shaking your head like like I thought I would. I think you missed the point. I think that there is something so much more important and deeper in this book. And we're gonna talk about those things today. So with that being said, this is how we're gonna do it. I'm gonna provide just a quick recap of the concepts of the book because I want them to essentially be the lens and framework of how we um, tackle this final chapter. Um, I'll also do a recap of the chapter itself that talks about Donald Trump. And um, I'm not going to talk too much about chapter 10. Chapter 10, for those of you who read, or perhaps for those of you who haven't read, rather, it's just like a conclusion summary chapter. A lot of good things. Definitely read it. I'm not going to talk too much about it today. But once we do those two things, I want to just pose a lot of questions today. This is going to be a sermon that doesn't answer a lot of questions. It's going to pose a lot of questions today um, about perhaps how we got here and how we should move forward as a church, how we should move forward as a country as we aim to heal from the last four years. 
So with that being said, let me just give you all a quick recap of, you know, Brian Zahn's sort of thesis statement. You know, I think that he did such a great job at providing both a comprehensive and accessible sort of framework for A, how Christians are called to live, as well as perhaps um, how Christians have lost their way. So in the book, you know, uh, Brian Zahn really has this great sort of Christian litmus test that he poses for all of us about what it means to be authentically Christian, authentically Christian like perhaps the early Christians. And his main thesis, if I have to do it in one word, is Christians are called to be countercultural. They're called to be countercultural. They're not supposed to, uh, to conform to the mainstreams of culture. They are supposed to be as exiles. Kind of like how the Jews were exiles in Babylon in the Old Testament. That is how early Christians should be aiming to live. They should be countercultural. So what does that mean? What does that look like? It means a lot of things. It means that we need to reject empire and imperialism, AKA the conquering of others by force. We need to break the cycles of violence. And I don't even just mean being anti-war, although that is one of the ways I mean it, but also just like breaking the, the, the cycles of, of, of accusation and violence among each other as, as neighbors. As a Christian, like I said, we are to live as exiles in this country. We need to pledge allegiance to God more so than pledging allegiance to our country. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. We are called as Christians to care for the poor and marginalized. That is so much at the center of what Jesus called us to do. And perhaps most importantly, we can be countercultural by really loving our neighbor and really taking that to heart. So with that being said, you know, again, I think that this is a great Chris, a Christian litmus test. You know, you can see, all right, is this or are these people or is this person a Christian based off of do they follow these things? And as I thought about it, I think that Brian Zond is right. I think that the American Christian church, um, perhaps even specifically the evangelical church, but not just, not just, not just them, we've lost our way. We've lost our way in so many ways. I, I don't believe that the American church is countercultural anymore. I don't. I don't necessarily believe that the American church lives as an exile. I don't necessarily believe that the American church rejects empire. In fact, there are so many cases in which it embraces it. So with that being said, let me get to the chapter of Donald Trump. And, and, and wow, this, this chapter is such a powerful chapter. And it's something that I, I related to so much as I was sort of navigating the waters of Donald Trump these last four years in the Christian community. You know, this chapter tells the story of how Donald Trump successfully courted American Christians to win the White House, despite, you know, Brian Zahn calling him, quote, the embodiment of greed, lust, and pride. Which seems like, whoa, 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 you know, sick burn, bro. Uh, you know, I, I, I can see why some of you all might think that that is an unfair insult to Donald Trump. Um, but I don't think it is. And the reason why I don't think that it is, because for any of you who've really kind of followed Donald's Trump rise to power, as well as like kind of seen him in the media, he is a self-proclaimed hedonist. He is somebody that would, you know, in a braggadocious sort of way, go on talk shows, television shows, radio shows, and just, and really just 
uh, you know, talk about how he lives for himself. He lives to enrich himself. He lives for lust. He lives for greed. He doesn't care who you are. He will screw you over to get his way. He wrote a whole book about it. Like, so if the guy tells you who he is, we should believe him, right? And so I don't necessarily think that this was an unfair insult to Donald Trump. I think that Brian Zahn is saying like, hey, this guy has said this and has proclaimed these things. And so now he wants a piece of the Christian pie and everyone's willing to give it to him, but I'm not so sure I should because of who this man claims to be. And something that I loved about this chapter is he starts it off by talking about how Christians, his own peers, Brian Zahn, who's a pastor, a very important, prominent pastor, his peers criticized him for refusing to be in lockstep with the religious right. And man, I, I, I can't tell you how many times it's happened to myself. I can't tell you how many times it's happened to my father, who's also a pastor. I'm sure there are people who are watching this right now who you, you relate to that. You know, it seemed like at one point in, in, in these past four years, you know, anybody, any Christian that was critical of Donald Trump in the church was accused of being critical of the church itself. Or, uh, or, or perhaps even, you know, put in a position to, to, to say, whoa, whoa, you're, you're just this liberal person who is out of touch with Christianity. And that felt so unfair. And, and, and it felt as if we were creating this environment in which Christian nationalism was now our theology, right? And what's really, really interesting about all of this is that, um, you know, Brian Zahn makes the case that because American Christians are so obsessed with perhaps, you know, their patriotism, with this idea that we need to treat our, our, our patriotism as sacrosanct as our faith, it set the stage for Donald Trump to really exploit them. It set the stage for Donald Trump to fool them into believing, I am one of you and I will help you achieve your mission as a church. Wow. That this, and, and, and this, this idea that political power is the best way to spread Christian influence, that has been the way for so long. It's not even just, you know, what set the stage for Donald Trump's America. This has happened all throughout history. You know, this happened with Constantine in the Church of Rome. This happened in Nazi Germany in the 30s. And now it's essentially happening now, all right? Donald Trump was not the first. He's not the first and he won't be the last. We have to remember that. And so we need to really understand what it is that is happening here and why it is that someone who, again, is the embodiment of greed, lust, and power, someone who, who, who again, is... It, it, it was was very flippant about just how much of a bully he is. How was this person able to court the Christian church? And Brian Zahn creates a really compelling argument for how it came to be in this chapter. And uh, he has a really great quote, which I'll share with you. It's on page 137. And it talks a little bit about what it is that Christians were so enamored by with Donald Trump. And he references a history professor from Messiah College, uh, Dr. John Fee. And Dr. John Fee, he explains it like this. 
This election, while certainly unique and unprecedented in American history, is also the latest manifestation of a long-standing evangelical approach to public life. This political playbook was written in the 1970s and drew heavily from an even longer history of white evangelical fear. It is a playbook characterized by attempts to win back or restore culture. It is a playbook grounded in highly problematic interpretation of the relationship between Christianity and the American founding. It is a playbook that too often gravitates towards nativism, xenophobia, racism, intolerance, and an unbiblical view of American exceptionalism. About mm. those words really, really hit me where I live, and they're true. You know, especially as, you know, as all of this was unfolding, and even someone who was very skeptical of Donald Trump at first, like myself, when I would ask my, my peers, you know, what is it about this person that you love so much? He is such a mean-spirited person. He is someone that... I wouldn't trust to be my children's babysitter, let alone the president of the United States. And they all told me in lockstep the same thing. They said, Donald Trump is the man that is going to bring Christianity back to the forefront of American culture. Donald Trump is going to do more for Christians than any of president we've ever seen before. And that's why I'm going to vote for him. Whew. There's a lot to unpack there, right? You know, we have to ask ourselves the question, is it right for us to be in bed with power if it means greater influence for the church or greater influence for God? I can see why someone can logically get there, but I'm but but the path to that is paved with things that Jesus would vomit over. And I mean that, and I, and I don't, and I don't mean to sound hyperbolic. I really, really mean that. Because at the end of the day, character has to be more important than someone's ability to do something for us, right? And I think when it comes to this idea of, you know what? I, we need to have a president, a president that is going to just in, in a powerful way, bring back Christianity to the forefront of American culture. I'm not sure if that's what I really want. I'm not sure if that's something that's really healthy for, 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 for the church, but not even just for the church, but for the country as a whole. I am more led to believe that the way we get there needs to be just as important as getting there. It can't just be about winning for Christ. It can't just be about winning for the church. How we win is very, very important. And essentially, Zahn, he's making the case that evangelicals have abandoned authentic Christian values in order to pursue their self-serving agenda, which is based in fear, power, and an unhealthy attachment to patriotism. You know, Donald Trump, he came in, he told us all, he told the Christian church, I will bring you back. I will get rid of abortion. I will make sure that I build a wall that will keep these immigrants out. I will put in place policies that will make sure that you all are safe 
from you know PC culture, you all are safe from the LGBT community, you all are safe from all of these things that really trample on your God-given Christian rights. And some of us, you know, we looked at that and thought that seems like you're talking like a crazy person. But a lot of Christians looked at that and said, that's what I want. That's what I've been hoping for with, with, with American politics. That's what I've been hoping for this whole time. So, they, so a lot of Christians, they held their nose and they voted for Donald Trump because they thought, you know what? As long as an abortion is no longer allowed, I don't care who this man is. As long as we can get prayer back in schools, I don't care who this man is. That was the mentality, it seemed like. And it just seems like Christians were duped in so many different ways. And when Brian Zahn really kind of delves into this, he, he, he talks so much even about just how American culture is shaping Christian culture, you know, and how what we value as, you know, good old fashioned red blooded Americans, you know, how that, how that, you know, gets in the way in regards to how we, we, we live our lives out as Christians and how we, we, we create ideas and opportunities for people as Christians. There's a quote that he uses, Brian Zahn, in the, in the book that um, talks about uh, this Dallas pastor. It's on page 139. And it's horrifying. There's this Dallas pastor. I don't even know if I call him a pastor. Um, but he is uh, the lead pastor at Dallas First Baptist Church, which is a church, by the way, that has like 12,000 people. And he told the Dallas Observer this in regards to Donald Trump. When I'm looking for a leader who's going to sit across the negotiating table from a nuclear Iran or who's going to be intent on destroying ISIS, I couldn't care less about the leader's temperament or his tone or his vocabulary. Frankly, I want the meanest, toughest son of a gun I could find. And I think that the feel that's the feeling of a lot of evangelicals. They don't want Casper Milktoast as the leader of the free world. Um, there's so much I want to say about that, but I'm going to try to hold back. First of all, all right, Jesus is probably more like Casper Milktoast than he is like Donald Trump. Let's just call it as we see it. Um, secondly, wow, wow, this person, a pastor, a pastor of 12,000 is saying that evangelicals prefer their leadership to be mean, tough tough <laughs> you know someone who is intent on destroying isis someone who is just you know not just a pushover kind lovable person you know that's what that's that's what they want their leader to be like oh man these people know who jesus is right they know that jesus wasn't anything like those those things that they just described right wouldn't you want your president to be like jesus wouldn't you want your president to perhaps, I don't know, go two weeks without saying something super offensive about a marginalized group? Wouldn't you want your president, as a Christian, to be someone who really cares more about people than the economy? If that quote right there isn't an indication that the American church has lost its way, I don't know how else to tell you that. I think that the proof is in the pudding there. So 
imagine this also, and, and this this is something that I'm sure a lot of you have have heard from your from from perhaps a lot of like the conservative Christian groups that that, that um, are really trying to make a case for Donald Trump. Zahn, you know, rejects the idea that Trump is God's anointed leader. I can't tell you how many times I've heard pastors and and Christians just say that, you know what, Donald Trump, he's, he's our president for a reason. He's our president because, you know, God is, is intent on using him. I'm sorry, I feel like I keep using like a Southern accent. I don't mean to, but you know, that's what they say. God is, is, is using Donald Trump the way that he used like Cyrus in the Old Testament. And that is such a bogus idea. It is, you know, and, and, and Zahn writes about that in this chapter. He resents the idea that Christians are using this weird literal interpretation of Old Testament to somehow prop up Donald Trump as the anointed leader. That is hogwash. That is such a surface level reading of those texts, all right? We have a New Testament for a reason. All right. The New Testament tells us that God is no longer raising up pagan kings or corrupt figures to do his work. Jesus replaced that. When in the New Testament did God utilize a pagan king or corrupt figure for his work? There was no need to. There was no need to. Jesus gave us a way. Jesus was the one that gave us the Sermon on the Mount. He's the one that gave us the Beatitudes. He is the one that paved the way. We don't need, we don't need Donald Trump. So this, 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 this concept that Donald Trump is somehow, you know, the, the leader that God wanted, it, it just falls flat on his face, um, both rhetorically, but even from a, a biblical interpretation standpoint. So let me recap. I know that that was a lot, and I hope it didn't get too ranty, but I will say this, you know, as I read this chapter, it was really important for me to reinforce those ideas that we talked about earlier in, in, in the sermon. You know, as Christians, we're called to be countercultural. We're called to reject empire. We're called to break the cycle of violence. We're called to live as exiles. We need to love our neighbor. We need to care for the poor. We need to care for the marginalized. So are Christians doing that? Are Trump supporting Christians really living up to that call? I'm not sure. I'm not sure they are. Because based off of what we know about, about Jesus and the Gospels and how to be countercultural in that way, Jesus was not at all like Donald Trump. Jesus was not at all interested in being in bed with power to, 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 uh, to spread his mission. Do you think that, you know, Jesus in the New Testament would go up to Pilate and be like, hey, Pilate, I know you have a lot of power. I have this message. You and I should work together. We should work together. We really should. We should work together. Jesus never did that. He would, he would never do that. You know, Jesus created this subversive movement in which he practiced civil disobedience. He cared for the poor. He taught us what it really meant to be human. He taught us what it really meant to love. He taught us what it really meant to break the cycles of violence, to break the cycles of accusation, to really arrive at a place in which it felt like even as poor people, as marginalized people, we could somehow experience the kingdom of heaven here on earth by living in this way. 
We needn't get in bed with power. We needn't, you know, you know, vote for somebody to advance a Christian agenda. That's not the way of Jesus. That is the way of Christendom. That is the way of a church that has clearly lost its grip on the gospel. So what now? What now? How do we move forward from all of this? I'll give you some good news. The good news is that Donald Trump is no longer our president, and I hope that after today, I never have to preach another sermon about him. But there is so much work that needs to be done in the church. Period. There's so much work. So let me ask you these questions as I close. As I reflect on the wisdom of this chapter, you know, a few important questions and thoughts kind of come to mind. What is the root cause of our affinity towards empire and culture? Again, like I said earlier, Donald Trump is not the first. He will not be the last. This is a question we really need to think about. We need to think about, you know, what happened in the time of Constantine. We need to think about what happened in the time of Nazi Germany. We need to think about the time where the church in America utilize scripture as a way to rationalize slavery and bigotry. We need to rationalize how the church is so set on utilizing a, 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 a figure like Donald Trump for their purposes. We need to really ask ourselves, why, why is it that that is the way? Why is it that people have, 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 have resorted to those things? And I think Brian Zahn touches upon it. You know, I think that Brian Zahn really, really, um, you know, paints a picture of the human experience and why we're led towards those things. And I honestly do think that some of the root cause is, is, is perhaps a few things. I, one, I do think that um, the American church at large is completely getting it wrong in terms of scriptural interpretation. And I, I, I'm not trying to, uh, to, 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 to be on my high horse or put my own self on a pedestal. I, I, I do and still do at times, you know, misread scripture. But as Christians, we need to make it a regular, regular practice to make sure that we are studying scripture. We are studying its intent. We are not just utilizing just the Bible as our echo chamber. We're not just utilizing the Bible as, as the singular authority for itself, but perhaps reading academic articles, academic books about what it means to understand this very complicated, difficult book. Secondly, I think that Christians have really, really lost their their way of what it means to be countercultural. And I love that this book is a reminder of that. I, you know, again, this book really convicted me in so many ways. You know, it convicted me with how I looked at myself and how I looked at my own faith. You know, I too am a slave to consumerism. I too am a slave to empire. I too am somebody that struggles to break the cycle of accusation. And it's something I need to get better at. It's, it's the only way for me to not have an affinity towards empire and towards culture. And the third thing that I think could perhaps be at the root cause is that we've really lost our concept of what it means to love our neighbor. I said this at the last um, Connect group that we had this past Wednesday about the idea of, you know, politics and Christianity coming together. And I don't necessarily think that politics and Christianity can't coexist 
they just can't be married, in my opinion. And we can, and if you disagree with that, or if you agree with that, please type type something in the chat. I would love to, I would love to make that a, a jumping off point for us today. Um, but I look at it this way, you know, Democrat, Republican, conservative, or liberal, nobody has a monopoly on the truth. But more so than that, we need to understand what is it that are the important values of Christianity, of, of the gospel. And those need to supersede any political affiliation or any concepts of patriotism that we have. Especially because that is the best way to love our neighbor. I was saying this, like I said, when we had our connect group, I, I told the connect group, I, I am a Christian and I am someone who believes certain things. I don't always vote that way, though. I don't. And the reason why I don't always vote that way is because it is not necessarily a healthy practice for me to only vote in the interest of my Christian, of my Christian peers. All right. God is the God of all people, whether you're Christian or not. All right. And we are called to love our neighbors and your neighbor isn't always Christian. Your neighbor is a Muslim. Your neighbor is an atheist. Your, your neighbor is a bunch of things. And I couldn't possibly vote for something that oppresses those people and, and, and pushes my, my faith agenda on these people because we're called to love our neighbors the way we, we would like to be loved. Right? So should the roles somehow be, be reversed, would I be okay with them voting in a way that infringes on my Christian values? Of course I wouldn't. So why would I do that to them? And that leads me into this next question, which I think is a really important question. How do we live as exiles in America? What does that mean? How do we live as exiles? And I think that for me, what that looks like is again, making sure that I am never um, allowing my allegiance to America to supersede my allegiance to Christ. And there's a way to do that. We see examples of how to do that um, in the book of Daniel. Daniel, Joshua, Joshua, da Daniel. Um, and, we, and we see, and, and we, we, we also see it in yeah, it's it, it, so many times, even in the New Testament, it, with the letters of the Apostle Paul about how we can essentially live among Romans, but not necessarily be Romans. I think that that is exactly the energy and exactly the, the pedagogy that we need to follow as Americans. If my Christian values are, are, are being trampled on by, by politics, even if it's politically expedient for me, I don't believe that that is something I can subscribe to. And I'm sure that that sounds like an obvious thought, but you'd be surprised how hairy that gets, especially when it comes to the military, especially when it comes to war. Like Pastor Ryan said in, 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 in our previous sermons, white evangelicals are very okay with war. They're very okay with torture. They're very okay with, you know, allowing America to essentially be an imperial force in the world. But those things are anti-Jesus. They're anti-Christian. And we need to call them out as Christians, even if that means having to call out our own country. Even if that means that we have to say, look, I love America, but America is failing. And the final question that I'll pose today 
is how can we move forward with healing the wounds of our nation? Again, like, you know, I don't know if I have a good answer for any of these questions, um, but, they, but, but, that is, but that is what is on my mind as we uh, enter this new chapter of American life, you know, with a new president, with a new Congress, um, as well as just, you know, uh, hopefully um, uh, an invigorated dedication to civility. It's time for us, as Joe Biden said, to lower the temperature and see each other again. It is time for us to not look down on the evangelical Trump supporter, but to ask that person, hey, I wanna understand you. I wanna understand your needs, and I hope that you'll, you'll oblige me in the same way. And we can just come together and just break bread together and really just be a church again. It is a misnomer in the church that the church needs to, 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 to be this perfectly unified body where nobody um, ever disagrees with one another. I think that that is, uh, you know, the biggest hogwash ever. I, you know, I only ever want to be part of ch a church in which we have a diverse group of ideas at the table and we are not always in agreement, um, but we are always in love. And I, I think that the American church has really, really succumbed to the powers of tribalism and to the powers of just looking at someone who doesn't think like you and thinking that that person is a sinner or thinking that, that person is less than or thinking that that person, you know, somehow doesn't love God the way that you love God. And I say that as, 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 as a progressive person who has thought that about my fellow Christian. And I repent of that. I do. I do. I think that it is important that we really come back to this place of love. That we really come back to this place of, yes, we are different from your evangelical Trump supporter. But I also think that, you know, once we really get to know each other, once we really um, lower the temperature and see each other again, there's a way for us to, to come together and still live together. Life doesn't necessarily have to be a competition on who's more right or who's more wrong. I don't actually think that that's all that important. What is important is how can we come together and live happily, safely, and dignified? How can we come together and we'll have to come together, you know? Our children will play with their children. They will be at those PTA meetings with us. They will be in those churches with us. Are we just gonna hate each other forever? Are we just going to be in opposition and in defiance of each other forever? That's not a life. That's not how we should live. That's not what God wants us to do. So let me conclude with this. We should all evaluate if we're actually living up to the standards of being countercultural. And if we're not, let's come up with plans to improve. If we are, let's come up with a plan to grow. You know, something else that I wanna challenge all of us to do is just to connect with your neighbors. And I don't mean like your neighbors, like your fellow progressives or your fellow conservatives. I mean, I want you to connect with your neighbor whatever they look like, whatever they feel like, whatever they believe, all right? And I think that we need to break bread with these people. We need to go and meet these people where they are, the way Jesus went and met people where they were. 
and I'm gonna close with a verse. A lot of you know this verse, it's a very popular verse. Some of you may have even gotten married to this verse. This isn't actually a marriage verse, by the way, but that's okay, it's okay that you got married to this verse. You might also know this verse because this verse was uh, featured in the very famous Mandy Moore movie, A Walk to Remember, which, oh man, I don't even remember the last time I thought about that movie. <laughs> so I lay my head back down. Anyway, sorry, I had to. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8, and it goes like this. You know it. You know this, this verse. This is the New Revised Standard Version. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. In some versions, it says love never fails, which I get, that's a little bit sexier, but I love love never ends. That actually is, is, is a bit more profound for me. And for those of you who got married to this verse, I, I love you, I don't mean for this to offend you. This is not a marriage verse. This verse, a lot of people don't know this, but this verse is actually about the church. This verse, um, kind of the context and the exegesis behind this verse is that the Apostle Paul was receiving word from the Church of Corinth about how there was a lot of squabbling in the church and about how some of the more senior or more seasoned Christians of the church were essentially like being very unloving, exercising moral superiority or spiritual superiority over like their less seasoned Christian brethren. And the Apostle Paul like, you know, viewed that kind of that kind of treatment as something that was clearly dangerous, something that he like really thought was just ungodly. And he said that, no, you need to, even if you believe that your less seasoned Christian person is like that, no, you have to love them. You know what love is? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You can't do this to your people. Man, when I think about that, sorry, when I think about that, it makes me cry. Because how often have I failed? How often, how often have we all failed in that? And I hope that we don't anymore. I hope that we, we turn a corner. And I hope with everything I have, that we allow for love to be the way. Love is the way for us to be countercultural again. And if we can love like Jesus loved, and if we can really just make meaning of our Christian walk in a countercultural way, wow. I think that's our way back home. I really do. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we love you. Thank you for all that you are. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for waking us up. Even though the church in a lot of ways has lost its way, we know that you are here to bring us back. You've always been here to bring us back. And may we live up to the calling that you set out for us and the Sermon of Mount, and in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. 
We want to love people the way you love people. And we want to heal this nation. We pray all this in your name. Amen.